0: Greetings in the Master's name. You'd open your Bibles to Second Timothy, two. Uh, I guess the reporter had it right after all. I had sent in information to, for to the reporter that Levi Martin was supposed to preach today, and uh, earlier, back in July, he had when he was scheduled, he had something. Um, that conflicted, and so he had traded with me for this Sunday. Well, now this, then he called me this week and said that uh, <clears throat> he wanted to go to the, some of those funerals uh, in Pennsylvania, those uh, those fellows that were killed in that plane crash, that he had grown up with some of them and knew them. So, so it looked like that, uh, well, and then, so I thought, <clears throat> I called, uh, I called uh, Elam. He wasn't scheduled anywhere to preach today, and he scheduled later and see if he would preach. And he said, well, that's communion at peak, and he really felt like he shouldn't miss that, and that was understandable. And so I called davy Showalter, and uh, he was also not scheduled today, but he was scheduled later on. And he said, well, he did some trading around. He's supposed to be at Boyer Hill today. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so, um, the uh, message for today, the title is The Soldier, and I've been thinking about this and thinking I'd probably need several weeks to work on it, and uh, I didn't have several weeks, but anyway, here we are, and uh, so it seemed like this is the way the Lord worked it out. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So, like I said, the title of the message is a soldier. We know what a soldier is. And it says in verse three, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The uh, I think that word in the greek is used only here in timothy i'm not sure about that but i think that's the way it was it's also in verse five of chapter four where it says watch thou in all things endure affliction so the idea is hardship afflictions. uh as a good soldier of jesus christ endure hardships and afflictions now most of us are aware that a war is going on in ukraine and I think the presidents said sometime back that they were suffering maybe 200 casualties a day. I don't know if that was fatalities or just fatali- or fatalities and wounded together, but 200 a day. And so what does an army do when there's casualties like that on the front lines? Um, I think I read in the news this week or recently that... Uh, President of Russia wants to increase his army by 137,000. So what do the kingdoms of this world do when there are casualties? And what does Christ's kingdom do when there are fatalities or casualties? What's the difference between the approach to warfare by the kingdoms of this world and those in the kingdoms of heaven. Uh, there's uh, Recently, I read an article about Barry Grant. Uh, Barry Grant is the uh, boots-on-the-ground director of CAM in Haiti, and um, he wasn't always a Christian. He said, when I was in the Marines... They would constantly remind us that our lives were not number one. Our country was. There are many young men who put their country first. Many have gone and given their all. Many have died. In World War II, the Japanese would try to sneak up to a foxhole housing soldiers and throw in a grenade. Many times it didn't end like the Japanese wanted because someone would jump on the grenade, absorbing the explosion. Thousands gave their lives to save their friends and defend their country. But be sure, if their priorities were not in order, and those priorities were country first before themselves, they would not have done so. If someone today in America would risk their life for the sake of the gospel, he would be labeled as foolish, reckless, and immature. But what do we say about so many before us? the ones that gave their lives while standing for the same things that we say we believe today. And what about the thousands today who are putting their lives on the line in other countries? Are they foolish? In the kingdoms of this world, where the battle is raging, more forces are thrown into the battle. In the kingdom of heaven, when there are casualties, the forces are withdrawn. Now, is that a correct assessment? Uh, It's not always been that way. In this article that Barry Grant wrote, he started out this way. It's been said that in the 1500s, after baptism, the Anabaptists lived an average of only 27 days. Now, I don't know where he got that statistic, but uh, in, um, in an article sometime back called the Hutterite Mission Machine, it, uh, it said that um, within days after the birth of the movement, with death sentences still over their heads, the early Anabaptists went into neighboring cities with remarkable success. In one account, Conrad Grebel went north to St. Gaul and interrupted an Easter parade with the preaching of the kingdom of God. By the end of the day, over 500 new believers are re- repented and believed. And then, um, it, it, this is a, a fact. The, um, in 1527, there were 60 Anabaptist leaders who got together to discuss how to, how to move ahead and, um, that group of 60 men, within five years, 58 of them were dead. 58 of them were dead. And so there was a 5% survival rate there. And uh, that's been called, that group That group of men that met, uh, that's been called the Martyr Synod because of that. And then uh, he also talks about the, uh, especially the Hutterites, I mean, they sent people all over Europe, and four out of every five that were sent out were killed. As soon as one was killed, they ordained another one to take his place. So that's similar to earthly warfare. Well, he goes on to say, barry grant did in this article they were hunted and killed they realized one thing serving christ would most certainly cost them everything they forsook the comforts of easy living they forsook it all it could also have been a similar situation when jesus walked on the earth or shortly after he was killed Uh, let's turn to luke 14 Luke 14, starting at verse 25, and uh, there's a paragraph here, uh, 25 through 33. My Bible is divided into paragraphs, and the the title of this paragraph is The Cost of Discipleship. So starting at verse 25, uh, the, the multitudes, it says, He turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, setteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. For what king, going to make war against another king, setteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand, to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple." Three times in those verses, we have the words, cannot be my disciple. Going on with Barry Grant's article, Jesus clearly asked his disciples to count the cost, and they must have counted the cost, for they faithfully gave all, including their lives, for Christ's kingdom. And I might say, you know, we what does that mean about hating father and mother and wife and children, brother and sisters and so on? Um, well, the, the, there's examples of that. Um I, uh, I put uh, a, a, a copy of some uh, some accounts in your mailboxes. And uh, one of the accounts is Family Forsaken by Jared Hospood. And it wasn't that he didn't like his family. But in putting Christ first, he had to forsake his family. And uh, that's an interesting account. um, That's just one of uh, several that I have in this uh, uh, collection. Okay, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3, 12. 2 Timothy. Okay, again in 2 Timothy. And by the way, Timothy, of course... um, 2 Timothy was written by Paul uh, just shortly before he was executed uh, there in Rome for the gospel. And so he says here in 2 Timothy 3.12, and this uh, sometimes ministers often have a text verse. I don't very often, but if this sermon had a text verse, I guess that would be it. This would be it. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's just a plain statement. So what is persecution? I mean, uh, so out here holding signs yesterday, um, so out of 20 people, um, 19 of them wave at you and give you a thumbs up, and maybe one of them heckles you. Is that persecution? That's, That's kind of what we consider persecution, isn't it? Paul said, Yeah, and all. Now, is that okay? So, Paul here he is at the end of his life, and he's had a hard time, you know, and he's suffered a lot. So, yeah, he says, Yeah, that's the way it's going to be. Is that the way we interpret Scripture? going on with barry grant's article if we look at the promises which jesus gave us in his word about persecution and then compare them with the lives of jesus followers today we might be confused and rightly so he that says he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked first john 2:6. jesus says we should walk as he walked how did he walk well i know how we would say he walked, he walked uh he walked in holiness of course Ray Grant says, we know that Jesus had no place to lay his head and this was how he wanted it. We know that Jesus could have chosen to live where and how he wanted. He was, in fact, in control of the whole world, yet he was despised and rejected by the world and its system. When he spoke, people wanted to lay their hands on him. They wanted to kill him. He was not a popular person. He had few friends. In reality, he didn't fit in. And he didn't last long. Three years after his ministry began, he was killed. What about his followers today? Are they walking how he walked? And if not, why not? James four fourteen. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. The Bible calls our life a vapor. We all know what happens after that, the judgment, then eternity, So why do we care so much about this life? Why does life mean so much to us Americans? The answer is simple. We can obtain almost anything we want. Money is easy to get, and we can live how we want. We can live in pleasure every day. We go to the store and buy what we want. When we want, we have it our way. This is just how it is. For most of us, it is all we have ever known, the life of plenty. So how does this affect us? This type of living makes it especially hard to give all for Christ. It makes it difficult to obey Jesus' command to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It makes it difficult to say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In reality, it makes it difficult to be a Christian. When Jesus said, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it, what did he mean? Could it mean literally just what it says, that when you fall in love with your own life, you cannot follow Christ? When we are living to please the flesh and we have our lives figured out, it is hard for God to use us. We tend to believe that God has blessed us because, we, because of all our possessions and our status in life. But isn't this the prosperity gospel? What if that changed? Would we still consider ourselves to be blessed? Is it God or our own doing that causes us to be joyful? What if we found ourselves in John the Baptist's shoes or the Apostle Paul's? If we would be sitting in prison for doing nothing wrong, would our joy remain? It should if the Holy Spirit is living and working in our hearts. The Bible says that we can live joyfully. The devil wants us to love our life. It's that simple. When we love our life, we focus on it. We cherish it. The last thing we want to do is lose our life, even if it is for something eternal. I should say that just because we're going about our daily work though doesn't mean that we're negligent. Uh, like some of the testimonies uh, from those those people that were kidnapped in Haiti. Um, most of you haven't read this book yet, but some of you most of you'll probably want to read it. But that Sam Stallsfus. It's interesting. Um, five years before that happened, five years before they were kidnapped, he had written this in his journal. If I ever die as a missionary of the gospel of Christ, as a martyr for Christ's sake, I would count that the ultimate way to die. And he wrote that when he was just going about his ordinary activities um, in, in, in Pennsylvania in Lancaster. The um, later on, this is before he went to Haiti. He said, "I fully expect to be a martyr for Christ someday." And uh, Ryan Ryan Corver's mom, she said, and this is while I think this is while they were still kidnapped, and she was sharing with a ladies' group of church. I know very well this could end in death. But I believe the words in a song we sang, "How sweet would be our children's fate, if they like them could die for Thee." That was her testimony. While her son was there with those gangsters, we uh, we sang that song right regularly. Um. Our fathers chained in prisons dark were still in heart and conscience free. How sweet would be their children's fate if they like them could die for thee. We sing that. Is this, uh, is this being too critical? I mean, people observing our lives... Would it appear that our goal for our children is to get each child set set up in a prosperous business or at least a good paying job to live a comfortable life so they can raise their family in a peaceful, convenient setting? Isn't that what it looks like? A little book here called Grasping for Shadows. We need parents who will encourage their children to burn out for Christ. Parents who will not sulk when their sons love Christ more than they love father or mother. Parents who will not panic when their daughters are arrested because they choose to obey God rather than men. Parents who will show by life as well as lip that the person who puts Christ first is the person who achieves life's greatest success. Some years ago, when a father was in his study, a knock came at the door. Who is it? he asked. It's me, Ed. Can I talk to you, Dad? Come in, Ed. Ed entered his study, sat down, and after some introductory conversation said, Dad, I've decided to drop out of law school because the Lord is showing me he wants me on the mission field. Father said, Let's pray about Ed. There on their knees, the father commended his son to God and to the word of his grace. That father was Dr. T. E. McCulley. His son, Ed, went to Ecuador and laid down his life on the shores of the Curraway River martyred by savage Alka Indians. When Dr. McCauley told the story, he often added, how glad I am today that I didn't say a word to discourage or hinder Ed when he told me of his call to the mission field. I turn to Matthew 7. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And so what does that mean to us? The narrow gate straight way well you know we deny ourselves of a lot of things the world calls pleasure and you know we try to walk in a straight and narrow way read you a couple examples of what it meant to some of the martyrs by the way every home should have a martyr's mirror um so this um there's a lot of letters in here that they wrote to their fellow believers and so on before their, their death. O brother, were another to be found than this anxious, narrow, and straight way, than this air, near, anxious, narrow, and straight way, how gladly should the flesh put up with it? But it must pass the straight gate, and ho, how narrow this is, so that flesh and blood will adhere to the post. But dear and faithful brother, what great salvation the merciful Father has provided for me! So understand what the straight gate meant. Them, the flesh and blood, were left on the post. O oh, my dear sister in the Lord, when flesh and blood must remain on the posts and stakes. Then is the time of the severest conflict, for Satan also well knew to say this when he tempted God-fearing Job. When flesh and blood are touched, then the true faith is tried as gold in the furnace, and then must we strive lawfully to obtain through grace the crown of eternal life. Uh, Just another account... uh, uh, here in uh, that from the martyr's mirror, uh, actually, I typed this up from a couple different sources, but it was a very interesting account. Um, Macon wins, um, she was burnt for the testimony of Christ. And... Uh, She had asked her son, okay, he was 35 years old. She had children from 15 to 3 years old, and um, she told her oldest son to take uh, the youngest child on his arm occasionally for her. And um, He did that literally at her execution. He went to her execution, he stood on a bench. And uh, and then when they brought her out to tie her to the state to be burned, he fainted. And he stayed that way until she was burned to ashes and the crowd had left. And then he came back to consciousness and he went up and kicked around in the ashes. And they, and that, that, they didn't always do it, but for those, there were about six of them that time. They had screwed their tongues tight so they couldn't testify or sing. And uh, he found that tongue screw in the ashes. And I'm not sure if that's still uh, somewhere or not. I think maybe it is. I forget the story on that, that tongue screw. Uh, but he, he, the boy also saved a letter that she had written. Uh, I think it was, see, uh, Macon asked Adrian to keep her last letter on the back of which his father had, Earlier, he had written a farewell to her. Adrian must have cherished it greatly. This letter of Macon's is the only original copy of a martyr's letter which survives from the 16th century. The letter is now kept in the Mennonite Library in Amsterdam. I think that tongue screw is... Somebody's got it. I forget. But a friend of mine... A friend of mine had uh, some replicas made by a local uh, craftsman and so this is, this is kind of what they look like. Uh, well, anyway, you can screw it open and so on, screw it up. But I'll, I'll put it down here on the table, you can look at it if you want to. But um, that's the way that was. So I have, like I say, I put these in your boxes and I, there's a couple extras on the table in case Some of you want, uh, some of you young people want one that your family only gets one. I also put copies of this Hutterite Mission Machine article and the Moravian Mission Machine article uh, there, which I think they're kind of challenging. Um, A person person, um, that kind of. knows my emphasis or whatever or some of my perspective. They uh, uh, said something to me one time along this line. I guess I worry that we can think we will find fulfillment in simply being busy in good things such as outreach. We know that this will not bring fulfillment either. So how do we get back to the basics of outreach being an overflow of a deep and reverential love for God? And that I appreciated that. That um, input. Um, Get back to the basics of outreach being an overflow of a deep and reverential love for God. In other words, these living for Christ should be an outflow of our love for Him, not so much that it's a duty. You know, I need to be doing something for Christ. But I want to because I love him. And I was thinking about stories. And, and I've I, I mentioned them before, um, like um, like Judas, the uh, the Russian Jewish Jewess that was totally disowned and cast out, and um, so on by her family. But once she found the truth. I mean, there was no turning back. Of course, he was soon martyred by the uh, Bolsheviks. And then uh, another communist story from, and some of you read this one, A Small Price to Pay. And so his daddy was killed when he was, what, eight years old maybe, or six, I forget which, I think eight. And then he grew up through World War II and very difficult times. And then he became a youth leader. And he became a leader in the underground church. And he said, all this was a small price to pay for what Christ did for me. that That's thats living that response out of love for what Christ did for him. Or you take, even today, uh, Muslim background believers. I mean, some of them, when they get converted and, you know, they get to see the truth. I mean, it's no turning back. They, their, their lives are on the line for Jesus Christ. And... Uh, I, I um this thing about thinking about whether the uh the kingdom of God that we retreat when the battle gets fierce. Uh and I I, I wondered, is that what happened in Guatemala when John Troyer was killed? And uh so I, I got this book and was reading it yesterday, and actually they they, they, they left that community where the guerrillas were, but they didn't pull out of Guatemala. And uh Even that testimony, John Troyer's testimony and the testimony that was there, I mean, they were, they weren't careless. But they were willing to give their lives for Jesus Christ. And we're not living in a guerrilla situation. But giving our lives for Jesus Christ, um, so I wrote this stories like Judas, a small price to pay, Muslim background believers and so on folks who were searching and found Jesus and forever after their love for him compelled them to share the good news as well as the reality of eternal verities and you know I was thinking about all these things and and what Paul said in uh, in second Corinthians uh, now, you know Paul he got he got pretty uh, pretty visibly touched I guess you would say they're on the road to Damascus um and so he was all out he was whatever he did he was all out was, he was gone full blast but he said in second corinthians 5 he says for whether we be beside ourselves it is to god or whether we be sober it is for your cause for the love of christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all then we're all dead and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So not living for themselves, but for him which died for them and rose again. But he also said that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So it was also that knowledge of the awareness of every man having to stand before God and give an account that motivated him to tell them the truth so that they could stand before God uncondemned. And so it was duty. Well, see, another place he said, um, see, I don't know if I wrote that reference down or not. Um, I don't think I did. Yes, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. So they I have a duty. And I want to do it out of love, but I got a duty too. And you know, we say we're stewards of the gospel. We're stewards of the good news. Well, uh, thinking about a lot of songs that we sang, We sing a lot of beautiful things. And I I think we mean it. Uh, I would love thee, 379. I would love thee, God and Father, my Redeemer and my King. I would love thee, for without thee, life is but a bitter thing. Uh, The song, Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all. uh, Every verse ends with the words, Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all. No, Jesus, my Lord, I thee adore. O make me love thee more and more. Uh, 3.52 says, Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the king of kings. And I was trying to think of a song. I knew the word. I knew it had the word "train" in it. So I looked in uh, that um, little uh, book that uh, that uh, one of Lester Showalter's boys had compiled. It, it, it's a it's a concordance of the church hymnals. So I looked for the word "train," and I found it. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood red banner streams afar. Who follows in His train? A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climb the steep ascent of heaven through peril, toil, and pain. O God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. And the song we sang this morning said it perfectly. It said, gladly we surrender earth's deceitful treasures, pride of life, and sinful pleasures. Gladly, Lord, we offer thine to be forever, soul and life, and each endeavor. Thou alone shalt be known, Lord of all our being, life's true way decree." Matthew 835 for whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it and I want to say yet you know it's not you don't have to go to Guatemala you don't have to go to Haiti you you you, you you can give your life in some very mundane ways. And I was thinking about I was thinking about the mothers that give their life for their children, raising their family. Or there's many ways. But I still think there's some truth of what Barry Grant said in his article about how easy we have it and how that makes it difficult to a certain extent for us to lose our life that we might save it. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And that, I think, refers to a lot more than martyrs. Losing our lives for his sake. Let's, let's kneel for prayer.